Welcome, everybody, to the Live from the Code Bar podcast. I am, of course, your host, Robert. On this show, I'll be giving you part two of my series on the treasure hunt that started it all, Kit Williams's Masquerade. If you'd already listened to part one, and if you haven't listened yet, I do recommend that you do stop right here, go back and listen to part one. It'll help, obviously, make things a little bit more clearer, and this will help my downloads, of course. In that episode, I did talk about the creation of the book, the story, and, of course, the artwork and the puzzle. In this show, I, I do want to take the time to discuss and go through the solve, the find, and, of course, the scandal that defined it all. But first... I do want to start off with a little housekeeping. I would like to say a big thank out to everyone that downloaded and listened to the part one of the podcast already. Thank you very much. I started this podcast because I wanted to talk to you all about treasure hunting and puzzles, and a lot of you people wanted to listen, so that's great. Thank you very much. I've received a lot of encouraging messages from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and this really makes everything worthwhile. So thank you all, and I hope that I continue to keep you all fascinated, well, about everything. I want to again give a great big shout out to Nick Spira. Robert Brewer and Stephen Jenner, who created the music, the art, and edited the show for me. Thank you very much, guys. I also want to give a big special shout out and thank you to Dustin and Deidre White of the It Could Be an Oak Island podcast. Dustin and Deidre have helped out enormously in the spreading the word about the podcast. And basically, they're amazing people. So thank you very much. If you haven't already, I do recommend that you give their podcast a listen. It's very fascinating. It's all about Oak Island and the TV series. They're also very, very uh, involved in the secret treasure hunt, which I'll talk about later, and I'm going to actually have them on the show at a later date. Uh, thank you very much, guys. You've been helping spread the word out for me, and it's been absolutely amazing. You guys are, are great. So in just the first week of release, the Life in the Cobard has received a lot of, as I said, encouraging messages. We've also received a couple of iTunes five-star reviews, so I just want to give these people a big shout-out as well. The first was from JenJen9991, who wrote, Great synopsis of Masquerade. Can't wait for part two. And from Porky Finch, really enjoyed the first show. Looking forward to the next and some pub grub. Thank you very much for your reviews. And if I can ask everyone listening to please like, subscribe, and give iTunes a rating and a review so that others can find the podcast. And to Porky Finch... Keep listening, because at the end of this show, I will have my first Pub Grub review. I also want to give a big mention to the first ever annual Masquerade Tribute Hunt. This hunt begins on 3-2021, so the spring equinox, and has treasures hidden by Robert Brewer, Copper Dan, Forgotten History Hunts, Bill Gardner, Beth Hovec, Jenny Kyle, Natalie Nelson, Martin Smith, and Dustin Deidre White. And we'll, I'll also include a link to this awesome hunt in the show notes so everybody can stay abreast. So let's get back to the masquerade. You might have recalled that when we finished part one, we talked about, like I said, the book itself, the art, the puzzle, and it just got published. So after masquerade was published, it was an instant success. Multiple printings had to be made of it, and it never seemed like there was enough books, even for the American readers. People from all over the world suddenly had Lagomania. Everyone thought that they had the answer. And in time before the internet and email, and I know, how is that possible, you say? People resorted to the trusty postal service, and with that, Williams became one of the most written-to people of the time. It was predicted that over 30,000 letters, pictures, and notes were sent to Williams as verification of the treasure's hiding place. Most of all of England had some sort of a in-plain-sight hiding place, and many cunningly well-hidden sites as well. All of the American readers of the masquerade were not to be left out of the hunt, and the fun of it all Williams personally offered a round-trip ticket from the U.S. to England to any American reader who solved the puzzle correctly, leading to even more letters from the U.S. treasure hunters. 
Here are just a few examples of some of the U.S. treasure hunters and some of their correspondence with uh, Williams. Barbara and Aunt Klepper from Texas. They sent Williams more than 500 guesses to the treasure's location. Karen Stevens from Wyoming was at one time estimated to have written 30 to 40 letters a day to Williams, and many of them had latitude and longitude locations for him to try to piece out and work out exactly if that was the right answer or not. Probably my favorite searcher quote from all I found in Bamba's book, uh, that's the, the Hunt for the Golden Hair, regarding the craziness of the hunt was from page 75. It read, when you created the book, you created us. So I want to just focus on one special case study from Bamba's book, because I think it's worth taking a moment to think of the actual individuals that worked on this hunt. There was a lot of people, obviously, like I said, that were making sure that they followed the clues. They all believed that they knew what was going on and where the treasure was. One of the special case studies I wanted to share from the book came from a young girl from my home state here in New Jersey. Represent. So Linda May Maurice sent numerous letters and souls to Williams. He could always tell immediately her letters from the rest as they were always typed out neatly in capital letters and in plain white paper. Her letters always began with, my name is Linda May Maurice. She would send many letters that were well thought out and give very reasonable explanations for her choosing her treasure locations, places like Poole, Yeovil, Red Hill, Lancaster, Seven Oaks, High Wokeham, and many, many others. And at first, there was no way that Williams could tell that Linda May was in fact a child. Her letters were always well written until one of the last letters that she sent. I'm going to read that one out to you now. It read, My parents and my friend's family think we're both crazy. It sometimes gets to be a pain in the neck. People say we are nuts because they say it's impossible to find it. Even my mother thinks that we'll never find it. If we do, they will just all of a sudden become nice to us. I just know it. I've written to you before, but there has been one change made. Instead of my other friend helping me, I have a different helper. My other helper claimed it was going to make her go insane. Well, now that you know about the, my misery, I'll go on with the letter. And that's just one small little bit of information about uh, a letter that was sent. But I want to go on because Bamba did actually write to Linda May at the time to talk about her misery and what, uh, and I did want to include the response. So I'm going to read this directly from Bamba's book. So I do want to let you know that this isn't my own writing. I am reading directly from his book. My name is Linda May Maurice, and I'm answering a request from you, asking to write you a letter for my maddening treasure-seeking adventure. I live in the little town of Fairview, New Jersey, with Cliffside as a neighboring town. Fairview is an average of 20 minutes from the Big Apple. I mean New York. Excuse the slang. I am going to the I'm going into the eighth grade and shall become thirteen on September eleven. Maria Cereri, also from Verview, is thirteen and purely Italian. Francis Maioka, eleven, lives in Cliffside. Both Fairview and Cliffside are practically the same. Trees, houses, parks, and corner stores to fill the blocks of these friendly neighborhoods. The whole story of our days with Masquerade is crazy. It all began one day near Easter time when my father brought home a news article about a man who buried a treasure and wrote a clue-filled book about it. Of course, I became intrigued and told my friend Maria about it. My mother later spotted the book in a store window for nine ninety-five. I told Maria that we, if we both contributed $5, my mother lent me $5, but I never paid her back. Don't remind her. For some reason, I wasn't allowed to read the book immediately after my mother purchased it, so Maria actually had possession of it after my parents. At once we began to research. One of the first answers that Marie and I sent in was of Boyle, Ireland. 
We thought of this because of many paintings in the water, references to water, and elsewhere. There are also tea kettles and coffee cups, implying, so we thought, the word boil. Therefore, boil. Everything seemed to point out boil, even the numbers. Time went on, and we didn't receive any email letter, so we began all over again. We sent many more letters, but the next sensible ones were Nuke and Torque. We came upon the assumption because in one illustration there is a port or a key. We figured this to mean key was part of the name of the town where it was buried. Guess what? No luck. I can't exactly recall when Maria quit, but I believe it was about this time. We were getting so excited about the fact that we may have the correct answer. Maria's mother then told Maria that the book was messing her common sense. She also mentioned that we were treating it like a god, not a book. Maria seemed to be giving in, but I still was ready to be disappointed over and over. Maria began to doubt that there was a gold hair buried at all, and started that her mother wouldn't allow her to go on if she didn't find the resting spot of the jewel. So that's when she called me up and asked to have her $5 back. I told her it was really non-refundable, but I gave it to her anyway. We were still the best of friends, and any time I mention masquerade muscles, tense in Maria, and the subject changes abruptly. By now it was summer, and I told another friend, Fran, about it. Fran has four brothers, Carl, Patrick, Christopher, Eddie, and her mother is expecting another child. The whole family and ours, too, are really dedicated Catholics. Mrs. Maroka, Fran's mom, didn't think we were serious about it, and also was a bit worried about what would happen if we got too serious. But no need to worry. We contain ourselves. Any time we could get together, we went to the Cliffside Public Library. The head of the children's department, Mrs. Rosenthal, was happy to have treasure seekers from the area. Each time we came, she asked how we were getting along. Many times we went to the library hoping that it would be the day that we would make our names widely known. So the letter does go on, obviously talking a lot more about her experiences of finding, uh, trying to find the treasure, uh, obviously going over and over and over and again. I'm going to go all the way to the end because it is a long letter, but she does end with, A funny story concerns my sister, Lisa Joe. She told me I had to give her $30 and let her come with me if we found the jewel. She always wants me to include her with all the letters. In fact, that's why I'm writing this. I found Masquerade to be very unique. The realistic pictures made me feel as if you were part of the book. It was an excellent idea, and I'm looking forward to others. My idol at the present time is young Yankee baseball pitcher named Dave Rigetti. He is having a bit of trouble now, but he hasn't given up, and if only we could all follow his example. If I would have found the hidden hair, I would have used it to buy new clothes and a ticket to a Yankee baseball game. I would have put some of it in the bank and reversed it and reserved it for my adult years. But it didn't find it, and all these wishes returned back to our minds, waiting for another chance to escape. Well, it's a story with a happy ending. It was over a year ago that we began testing our intellect. While doing so, we were unawaredly exploring ourselves as well as each other. We grew in confidence and maturity. Although we didn't find the jewel, we found the most precious thing of all, ourselves. Now, that's just obviously one story from many from Bamba's book. He, he puts a lot of case studies in there. So I just wanted to put that out there, that there was a lot of people looking for this thing, looking for the hair. It wasn't just something that treasure hunters, it wasn't just something that people in England, there was people all over the world looking. So going back to the story, at first Williams tried to answer every serious letter he received. He kept them neatly filed away. However, as time went on, he was receiving more and more mail. As I said, upwards of almost 30,000 by the end. And so in the end, he started resorting to photocopying a reply, which was so well written that many thought that they were still receiving an actual personal reply from Williams. 
This all changed, and after years of not receiving anything close to a correct solve, everything changed for him, for Williams, on Friday, February 19th, 1982, and what happens is best described by Williams himself. We were woken up as usual by the dog barking at the postman, and my wife, Elaine, went down to get the letters and make the tea. Besides two fat parcels of letters from America, there were six letters Elaine recognized as coming from known masquerade treasure hunters, and another one which she brought upstairs. I opened it casually as I'd opened thousand upon thousand in the past. There it was, a letter with a map like Charles' drawing, but enough for me to know somebody had cracked it. The drawing had a cross in the top left corner of the map, but it was enough to let Williams know that the writer had been to Ampthill. His letter also mentioned the Bible verse on the rock that I mentioned in part one that Williams had found at the burial location. This was not part of the puzzle, but also did give a location confirmer. Kept straight away, excitedly called the number given in the letter, and he shouted into the line, You've got it! And this, my friends, is where things started to get weird. The person on the other end of the line started by telling Williams that even though he was right, he would not be going to dig up the treasure today, as he had a cold. Seriously, I just want to tell you a story here. I drove personally six hours from New Jersey to Ohio to dig up the Lost Skull treasure when I knew that I hadn't even found it yet and didn't even have an exact location. I just knew it was in a general location of a park somewhere in the middle of Ohio. I took my metal detector. I took my son. We drove the six hours out there. We stayed the night. It was freezing cold. My son actually got strep throat when we were out there, and we had to make the trip home. It was a trip that I would never forget, But and we'll tell the full story on a future podcast. My son's actually going to come on with me as well. But I just want to let you know that somebody that knows that they have the exact location and won't go dig it up, that, that's a big red flag. As Williams continued to talk, he realized that the man on the other end had no idea how the puzzle was actually solved. He'd worked out little clues in the book, pointing to the Catherine of Aragon cross, but the rest was all just luck, it seemed. The man on the other end of the line did give his name as Ken Thomas, which he said was not his real name, and he said he wanted to keep his anonymity. Ken Thomas and his solve was the beginning of the masquerade scandal. A lot of the info for this part of the podcast will come from lots of different online articles, such as Unmask, The Masquerade Con by Barry Penrose and John Davidson, and I will, of course, link all of the articles I used, as well as Bamba's book again, in the show notes. So the scandal resolves around a one Veronica Robinson, who was an old girlfriend of Kit Williams, who was actually living with him at the time when he was thinking up the idea of Masquerade. Now, the weird part was she was still living with Kit when the book was actually first published and he started receiving much of his mail. Veronica states that she did, however, not learn anything special from the hunt. However, according to a Sunday Times investigation and article, it was found that Veronica had already shacked up with somebody new, and within a year, she was searching for the golden hair herself at Hampdill with a man named John Gard. John Gard was at the time the business partner of one Dugold Thompson, which it turns out was the actual real name of the man on the other end of the line with Williams, Ken Thomas. Gard had convinced Veronica, as well as some metal detector enthusiasts, Eric and Richard Compton, to search Amtill for the hair, and he told them that the treasure was to be sold and the money would go to an animal rights organization. That was something big that Veronica was into. Now, spoiler alert, it didn't. Gard, it seemed, was the master home behind all of the deceit, even at one time offering the Comptons money to be the face behind the find. Veronica has, over time, tried to distance herself from Gard, even to the point of writing and apologizing to Williams for her involvement. 
Now, Thompson slash Thomas became the face of the treasure instead, appearing in interviews heavily disguised, and for the longest time, he denied having any outside help or info from anybody else. He claimed to have gone to Amthill because he knew Coot once lived in the area, and that he found the exact location when his dog ran off to have a wee, which is a very English way of saying it went off to the bathroom. Thompson Thomas's find shocked the masquerade world and community. As mentioned, he often went disguised and was even filmed with Williams freeing the golden hair from its wax case. And once he had the treasure, he refused to exhibit it or even show it. All of this led to many conspiracy theories about the treasure, including many suggesting that Williams and Thompson Thomas were in cahoots the entire time, and it was all just a play to sell more books. Williams, however, never really believed that Thompson Thomas had solved the puzzle, and he never had any proof to deny the find, however. Fast forward now a few years, and again, Thomas Thompson used the golden hair as a security to set up his own computer game company, which he named Hairsoft, which, if you ask me, was a bit on the nose. However, this suit this soon met with many financial problems, and eventually the hair had to be solved at auction at Sotheby's on behalf of the liquidator of the company. At auction, the 18-karat gold hair, inset with ruby, mother of pearl, and moonstones, fetched a whopping 31,900 pounds, which would be about 108,400 pounds today, or, I did the conversion for you, 148,791 US dollars. It was sold to a private buyer who was not identified, and it was from then that the golden hair disappeared from public view for over 20 years. Williams, who'd become very disillusioned with the events of the masquerade and the solve, did not like his reputation as an artist to be compromised. He did pretty much the same as the hair, retreating into his own art and only doing private showings. This is not the end of the story, however. Two legitimate treasure hunters, Mike Barker and John Rassau, were both teachers living in England and actually completely solved the puzzle and riddle, as Williams had actually intended. In a very strange twist, they were actually digging at a location very close to the actual hiding spot at almost the same time that Thomas was also digging. Because Thomas had contacted Williams first, and technically his location was correct, even though he did not solve the puzzle, he was announced as the winner. After the hair had been found, Mike Barker sent the complete solve and full answer to the puzzle to the publisher. Bamber's book gives a much better and full explanation of how Barker and Rassau solved the puzzle, as well as some stories about their adventures looking for the hair. But I will say this, they were the rightful inners of the treasure hunt, and still to this day, apart from Bamber's book, and an app which is now out of print, they have never really been properly recognized. To top all this off, as I mentioned before, they were both groups were digging in the same location, and a little story I will share, a week before Thomas claimed the hair, Barker was digging at the exact same location. Now, Williams... His astronomical calculations were a little bit off, and he'd buried the hair a few feet too far to the left of the actual location of where the shadow fell on the equinox. Thomas noticed the large hole, and he searched the discarded dirt piles, and it was in one of these that he found the hair's casket. Barker had dug up the treasure, and he didn't even realize it. That's how close he got to being the actual winner. So eventually things died down. Williams was eventually reunited with the gold hair from BBC special, but Masquerade will forever be remembered as the first ever armchair treasure hunt and for the scandal of how it was found. But it would not be the last, as we'll find out when I discuss other treasure hunts with uh, questionable endings such as Forrest Fenn's treasure and Fandango. 
stay tuned for future podcasts on those. So that's the story of Masquerade. I do also just want to go over a couple of other things with you today. Um, not long after I released part one of the series, I put out a call on all my social media and some of them actually followed up with some of their masquerade memories. So I wanted to share some of these with you. So the first one I want to share is from Lauren. She contacted me on Facebook. Lauren told me that her dad remembers spending hours at night poring over the book and with a stack of notebooks and encyclopedias piled around them. To this day, Lauren can still recite some of the poems by heart. Her father was an artist like Williams and really enjoyed the art in the book and said that he thought that was what made the book so enjoyable was the artwork itself. She herself remembers spending hours analyzing anything in the ladies' pockets, paying attention to every little detail. We, that's her father and her, thought for sure that they had Tara Tree Chops was leading them to the answer, so they thought Tara Hill in Ireland. But alas, that's not part of the UK. They were disappointed when it was discovered, but she will always remember the wonderful experience of how much fun she had with her father. So thank you very much, Lauren, for sharing your experiences and for listening to the podcast. Over on Twitter, we had at K-D-E-F-L-A-N-E. She wrote, my memories are boring. I learned how to look up a a character in a Chinese dictionary in an actual library. Not quite sure how that had to do with masquerade, but thank you very much. And Dan Amrich wrote, I have many, but they're probably no different from anybody else's. I have, however, done a bit of research that I hope will prove useful. Now, on a side note, I just want to put this out there. Dan actually provided a website on his Twitter, and it was actually one of the sites that I actually used in part one and part two of this podcast as a research. So thank you very much, Dan, for your amazing work. So finally, we're going to get to the last parts of the podcast where I'm most done. Now, last week we did do our first ever Code Bar cocktail. That was the Jack Hair Shandy. I hope you all gave that a try. So I'm not going to do a new cocktail this week, but what I am going to do is introduce something new. I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, and I mentioned it at the podcast last week, but this is what I like to call my pub grub reviews. Uh, obviously, any good pub, any good bar should have its own little pub grub. Uh, in this case, what we're going to do is I'm going to talk about uh, different reviews of maybe some puzzles, maybe some movies, podcasts, basically anything puzzle-related uh, that I'm not going to do necessarily a full show on, or maybe I will in the future. But uh, I did want to start off with something that I did get contacted about this week. So earlier this week before I recorded part two, I was contacted by the director of a film. He told me he had a puzzle film that he would like me to check out and possibly talk about on his pod- on the podcast. So I set my DVR and recorded the movie Three Day Weekend. So according to the press release, and look at me, I'm sounding all fancy, but it was sent to me by the director, which was pretty cool as well. Three Day Weekend is a thriller puzzle film similar to Memento. Now, I watched this movie, of course. I loved it. I I wrote lots of things down, but I just want to let you know that it's an amazing film. It's very, very smart. It it goes quickly. And it the most interesting thing about the film is that it shows it from all the different perspectives of all the different people in the film. Now, the most interesting thing about the film, though, is that it is own, almost entirely filmed without dialogue. Now, there is some obviously words here and there, some spoken, um, but almost always the characters don't interact with each other too much in terms of dialogue. Uh, the lead lady in the, the film is actually deaf, so she uh, does everything via writing and with sign language, so you don't get any words from her. Uh, the actual bad guys of the film uh, 
They're the traditional bad guys. A lot of what you're seeing is text messages and stuff like that. So it really does make for a very, very interesting film. That's for sure. Now, uh, it does star Morgan Krantz, who plays Felix on the TV show In the Dark, which, on a side note, my wife and I binged during quarantine. It does have Maya Strogen, Nathan Phillips, and Scott McDonald. So it's a very small cast, but because there's no dialogue, lots of action, it really does make up for everything in the story. So the movie does start out with Ben, who is Morgan's character, driving by himself to go camping. He ends up wandering into a private property to set up his tent next to a lake and then promptly falls asleep. Ben has stumbled into a kidnapping in progress, and we follow along as Ben as he is chased by the kidnappers and eventually becomes lost in the woods. Eventually, through the use of phones and watching the story switch between the different characters' perspective, we uncover clues and a map that leads us to buried treasure. And what's a good puzzle movie without buried treasure? Now, the film's director, Wyatt McDill, who contacted me, states, and I quote, If you like escape rooms, or jigsaw puzzles, or mystery novels, or crossword puzzles, this might be the first story for you. We made a film that starts fast and challenges the viewer with a complicated puzzle from the beginning to the end. So, everybody, three-day weekend is available through Showtime On Demand, through the the filmmaker's website, www.sleepercell.tv, Vimeo, YouTube, and Amazon Prime. And I will also, of course, add the show notes, uh, the links and everything like that. I really did enjoy this film. The action doesn't stop from start to finish. It jumps between the different perspectives, making things make a little bit more sense when you're seeing it through a different eyes. And really the lack of dialogue makes everything seem somewhat creepier. Uh, there is, however, a little violence and a little bit of language uh, with the little bit of words that are in there. There's some, some language, so little ones do beware. But it does fit the story well, so please don't think that you shouldn't watch the movie just because of that. Now, I am putting three-day weekend at the very top of my pub grub menu as my feature recommendation. Uh, that's simply because there's not much else on the menu right now. But as things grow and things go with the pub grub uh, reviews, we will get more on the menu as we go along. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Now, I know that was a little bit longer than our last one, but I just wanted to make sure that I share a lot of information with you. Please don't forget to like the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all with the handle at CodeBarLive. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And please, to help the podcast grow, give us a rating and review, like I mentioned before, on Apple Podcasts. I will be back in two weeks with a new show all about the creation and the use of Morse code. Until next time, everybody, keep digging.